Let's pray. God, you are just and you are good. You are faithful. You are true. You are sovereignly in control of all things. You work providentially in the small details and the large things too. Your God so incomprehensible, but yet made yourself known. And God, we stand humbled at that opportunity to know you because you have revealed yourself to us. And um, for many of us, you have repaired the relationship which we broke with you because of our sin. So we thank you, God, for a relationship that we can come to your word and we can hear you speak to us as our great God, as our Father, as the one who loves us and who has cared for us. And you continue to care through us through your word. And so we pray you would do that now, that you would open our eyes to behold wonderful things out of your word, that you would um, teach us, that you would cause us to revere your word, and above all, that we would understand it so that we can live it. It would impact our lives so that we can be transformed for your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to read for you Psalm 119, verse 137 through 144. This is God's word. Psalm 119, 137. Righteous are you, O Lord, and right are your rules. You have appointed your testimonies in righteousness and in all faithfulness. My zeal consumes me because my foes forget your words. Your promise is well tried and your servant loves it. I am small and despised. Yet I do not forget your precepts. Your righteousness is righteous forever, and your law is true. Trouble and anguish have found me out, but your commandments are my delight. Your testimonies are righteous forever. Give me understanding that I may live. Here you can see pretty quickly the key theme of these um, Verses together in Psalm 119, the key theme is righteousness, is, is rightness, the rightness of God's word. And we see the rightness of God's word because we see the author is righteous. Begins there in verse 137, righteous are you, O Lord. And now, you know, if you think about your own righteousness it's sometimes not existent most times it's tainted stained it's got filth attached to it whether it's motives or or history or um, just any sort of sin that that kind of tarnishes it. our version of righteousness is not even to be compared to what this means when it says righteous are you O lord the righteousness of God is hard to wrap our minds around um, in a single thought. But his righteousness goes hand in hand with all of his other attributes. And mainly when we think about the righteousness of God, we think about his perfection and his holiness. We most often can grasp the righteousness of God by understanding the expressions of his righteousness. We see the outflowing or the impact of his righteousness. That's how we can begin to understand it. And so, if we want to understand the righteousness of God, at the very end of this passage which I read, 
Um, David prays, give me understanding. If we want to understand the righteousness of God, we must look at the expressions of his righteousness or the impressions. Firstly, is his word. Secondly, is his son. This passage um, tells us that the scripture, God's word, is righteous as he is righteous. It expresses or shows his righteousness And because of that, we ought to live differently. James Montgomery Boyce says this. He says, in the law, we see the impression of God's purity, holiness, love, integrity, and perfection. You see that page after page after page. You see the holiness of God. You see the integrity of God. You see the perfections of God. And those things are expressions of or imprints of his righteousness. He is perfectly righteous. So if he is righteous, perfectly, holy, pure, then the the outworking of him, his word that he says he will keep, is also makes sense for it to be called right. Second half of verse 137, Righteous are you, O Lord, And right are your rules. If God, the author of the word, is righteous, then his rules are right. They are right. They are perfect and pure and integral and holy and good. They are right. Could the rules of God be otherwise? Could they be not right? Could they be off? If he is the author, they could not. The rule maker is perfectly righteous. Therefore, his rules are righteous. They are right. They are good. They are pure. To use an illustration from Boyce, he says, Just as a coin is the expression of the dye in the mint that produced it. So, just as the coin is the expression of the dye at the mint, so is the word of God the expression of the righteousness of God. That's what's imprinted. That's what the the impression is. This is God's word, and so it shows us the righteousness of God. He is right, and his rules are right. His word is right. The question we must ask is, why is this important? What what difference does it make? Sure, we we can take all the time we, we, we need to be able to study the righteousness of God and to study the attributes of God and to know God better, to know how pure He is and holy He is and right He is in all of His ways. But knowing that and knowing how that impacts His Word, it should change us significantly because the Word given to us before us that we might obey it, we know that it's right. We know that it's perfect. It's right. So then if we disobey the word, we're saying, God, you're not right. You're not right. Something you said is amiss. Something you said is not quite up to par. That I think my way is better than your way, God. That that I I think I have a little more wisdom here or a little more purity here or a little more uh, holiness here or righteousness here. If I'm going to do things my way and not the Bible's way, I'm saying I'm right and God is not. I'm saying I have a righteousness that, that supersedes God's righteousness. And that 
is false and we know it. When you say it that way, when you put it that way, that when we disobey God's word, we are saying our way is right and above God's way, it seems ridiculous because it is. When you know that God is righteous and the author of his rules, these rules are right because he is right and he is righteous. When we disobey the rules, we are blasphemous. We are saying that we are above God. We are smarter than God. We are wiser than God. We are more righteous than God. It's detestable to think in such a way. But then on the flip side is if we obey the word of God, if we obey it, we are saying that God is right. His way is always right, that he is pure and he is holy and he is perfect, that what he has said is true and good. So when we obey his weird word, we are declaring that with our lives, that we trust that God is righteous and his rules are right because they're his rules. They're not my rules or, or Moses' rules. They're God's rules. And so we, we recognize the author when we obey the very rules. We, we know that God has written on our hearts this moral compass. We, we have been given by God the, the ability to determine to some degree what is right and what is wrong. And then the word of God that he has given to us helps clarify that and helps fill that out. So that there is further instruction, better boundaries, greater clarity. And so that's why David even prays, like, I want understanding. Not just to know who you are in your righteousness, but the expressions of that in your word. I want to understand the rightness of the word. Because if I do, it'll change the way I live. I will obey it. I will trust you. And I will I then will be an expression of your righteousness and then you'll get the glory. That's the goal. God is righteous. His rules are right. And it says in verse 135, sorry, 138, uh, you have appointed your testimonies in righteousness. The testimonies of God, the words of God, the rules of God, the ways of God have been appointed specifically, purposefully, willfully. God has determined them and set them out to be an expression of his righteousness. And so then we want to be people who know God and his righteousness. So we want to be people who know the word and its expression of his righteousness because he has appointed his testimonies. He's appointed these words to tell the story, to testify, to be a witness of his rightness. Page after page, account after account, it shows that God is always right. It shows that God is pure. It shows that God is holy. He has appointed his testimonies in righteousness. None of it was done in, in some sort of sinful motivation, some sort of anger. Sometimes we lay down the law for our kids because it serves us best, right? Uh, it, it serves my, uh, you know, uh, my own ego best if my kids just follow this rule and they don't embarrass me in this way. That, that's not right. But God lays down rules in his righteousness and, and, and in right ways for right purposes, for right ends. Right goals. Always. He's appointed his testimonies in righteousness, in perfection, 
in holiness, and it says in all faithfulness. So what he says, he will do. What he says, it is true. It is lasting. Charles Spurgeon says, the word of God, it is righteous, and it may be relied upon for the present. And it is faithful, and that it may be trusted for the future. This is the word of God. Do we, do we know it? Do we believe it to be righteous and faithful? That it is right and relied upon and, and faithful, trusted in for the now and for tomorrow? David says in 139, My zeal consumes me because my foes forget your words. It was offensive to David that these um, what he calls his foes, his enemies, they forgot God's word. And how does he know that? How does he know that, you know, Jim and John forgot God's word? Well, because of the expression of their life, because of how they were acting, how they were living. They were living as though they forgot the word of God. They Maybe once acknowledge God, they maybe once believed his word, they maybe even say they believe in God. But they've forgotten his word, which is offensive to God, because if you forget the word of God, you're saying, again, my way is better than your way, God. And so David is offended by that. He's offended by these, these people who are his, he calls his enemies, because they are living contrary to the word of God. They've forgotten God's word, and they've ultimately forgotten God and his righteousness and his, his right ways. So he says, I've seen that. There's an expression of their unrighteousness is that they have neglected the very word of God. This word that verse 140 says is well tried. Your promise is well tried and your servant loves it. Your word has stood the test of time. Your word is well tried. It, it's, it's an assessment of the, the trustworthiness of it, isn't it? That over time it has remained. It is, as it said in the verse prior, it is faithful. It has stood that test of time that God's, God has spoken and he's not changed it. It's not like, oh, you know, I'm going to go back on what I said. Or I'm going to just bend the rules a bit. No, no, no. His word is well tried. It's been tested. When he, he makes a promise in his word, it has been well tried. It's been tested. That in the end, it comes out that God is still faithful to what he has said. That a promise he has made, he will keep. That when he says you disobey, this will be your end. It's well tried. It's been proved over and over and over but it's also well tried that if you, um, if you confess and if you obey and if you repent and you believe and you trust in God, that's also well tried. That you will be satisfied. It's also well tried. Not just in scripture, you see the satisfaction of those who maybe were once cowards. You know, like the, uh, the apostles at Jesus' time were once cowards when the soldiers came and when the whole trial was going on. They were cowards. But... The word of God implanted in them, encouraging them, equipping them, and changing them is well tried. That, that when it took root, you see cowards turn into courageous men who all were martyred for their faith. That again, 
is the word of God that says, I will keep you. I will make you courageous. I will be your strength. I will sustain you. I will hold you with my righteous right hand. I will help you to endure all the trials. That's the word of God that is right and faithful. And it's been well tried. It's been seen that when you trust in God as your final and only contentment, that you're going to get through whatever circumstance with faith, with courage, and with contentment. That's been well tried. It's been well tested. You see it in history. The word of God is timeless. It's timeless. Being well tried over, over time, over generation after generation. Have you seen that God's word has been well tried in your life? Do you know God's word? God promised uh, to be able to see that it has come to fulfillment in your life. Or can you recall an account in scripture, something that, that you think that, that reminds me, that proves to me that God's word is well tried. You see his promise coming through maybe to the people of Israel in their deliverance out of Egypt, right? They even grumbled and thought this is not coming through. God's not pulling through. He's not pulling through. He's not pulling through. But he did. He did. God's word was well tried for them too. It was tried through fire. It's tried through their grumbling and their complaining. It was it's been tried through the centuries by people trying to pick the word apart and find uh, contradictions. It's been tried by people trying to destroy it, burn Bibles, take them away, do whatever they can do. The word of God is well tried and it remains faithful and true. It's enduring through all generations. And David says, I love it. I love it. That is something that I can love, appreciate, delight in, take joy in. Something that is not shifting or wavering. David says, all these things are true about God. That you are righteous. Your rules are right. You, in your perfection, have appointed these testimonies that are right and faithful. Your promise sticks through. You're faithful to your own words. I love it. And then he says to himself, he says, well, I'm small and despised, yet I don't forget your word. I don't forget your precepts. So the idea here is David, no matter what he's feeling and what he's expressing is, is his current circumstance. In the end, in comparison to God's righteousness and God's word, it, it doesn't pale in comparison. He says, I'm small and despised. Well, when, when someone has made you feel small or someone has despised you or made you feel rejected, like you, maybe you feel you deserve better, you deserve better treatment, you are owed more respect by someone, more time by someone, you, you deserve first place in line there. You feel like you deserve more. You're despised, but remember the word. Remember, David says, I'm small and despised, yet I do not forget your precepts. Remember the word. Think, if you're small, despised, insignificant, undervalued, neglected, disregarded, if that's you, think of the word and what it reminds us of regarding the temptation to be jealous. Regarding the temptation to, to want to feel a sense of significance in this world. 
to, to chase after significance and fame and fortune. Rem- remember, do not forget what the Word has taught us about those things, that all is vanity. Don't forget. When you're small and despised, there are so many temptations, so many temptations to cry injustice, to cry, I deserve better, to cry, how come they get that and I don't? When you are small and despised, oftentimes you can get so self-absorbed if you don't remember the word. Here David says, I'm small and despised, but I do not forget your precepts. I remember the word because that is my deliverance. That's going to remind me of who you are and how faithful you are and what matters most. Remember the word because it's the enemies of God. It's the enemies of David here that he said in verse 139, forget the word. If we forget the word, that ex- there's going to be expressions of that. Flowing out of our self-centeredness, our our jealousy, our greed, our anger, our bitterness. That's what happens when we forget the word. when When we think that we are owed anything but death. We forget the word and there's an expression of it in the way we live. The gospel for us, the good news for us, the word of God to us is not about us becoming big and important. And accepted. It's about the righteousness of God. In Romans 1 verse 17. Just after Paul had said. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. And then in verse 17. In Romans 1 he says. For in it. In the gospel. The righteousness of God is revealed. It's about the righteousness of God. Verse 142 here in our psalm says, Your righteousness is righteous forever. Your law is true. The righteousness of God is eternal. Your life and my life is so wavering. It is so shifting. Circumstances come and go. We have good days, bad days. We're obedient, we're disobedient. But God's righteousness is is eternal. It has forever existed in the past and it will forever exist in the future. His rightness, his purity, his uh, holiness and perfection, God's righteousness is unwavering. It is eternal. Let us look to it. And it is true. It's true. It's not just that God's righteousness and the expression of it in his word and in his son is is, is just, it is true, but it also is the truth. David, again, looking to himself in verse 143, says, Trouble and anguish have found me out. I'm just surrounded by it. But your commands are my delight. There you always pause when you see someone express delight or love. You ask your question is, do I delight in his commandments? Even if I'm in trouble even if I'm in anguish, even if I'm in a trial, what is my delight? Is my delight escaping the trial? Is that where I'm looking to find my joy and my satisfaction? Or is my delight in the Word of God? And why would a delight be in the Word of God? Well, because God is righteous and His righteousness is forever. He is right. And then you see verse 144, he says, Your testimonies are righteous 
forever. Give me understanding that I may live. Your, righteous, your testimonies are righteous forever. And then he says, give me understanding. He asks for understanding, not further revelation, not new stuff, but a deeper understanding. The Israelites had a problem. The Apostle Paul, who himself was an Israelite, pointed out their problem. Uh, that Paul, by God's grace, had been given understanding. But he looks to his brothers and his cousins and his relatives and his people, Israel, and he says, there's a problem here. He's in anguish over their problem. Their problem was ignorance. They were ignorant. They didn't understand this passage is echoed here. Romans 10, Paul, we hear Paul say, For being ignorant of the righteousness of God, and because they were ignorant, they didn't understand the righteousness of God. Here's what happened. He said, For being ignorant of the righteousness of God, seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. They didn't. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. And Paul was in anguish over this. He said, they didn't trust God's righteousness. They didn't understand God's righteousness. And so they thought, well, I'll just establish my own. And I'll build on myself. Or even, I'll take God plus my righteousness and I'll try to work out a deal with God. And that's how I'm going to finally get to heaven. And Paul's grieved by that because we... We know that's not the true way to God. That our righteousness is, is tarnished. Our righteousness is as filthy rags before God. And so if we come before God on that day and we've died and he says, you know, why should you get in here? And you say, look at my righteousness. I've established my own. Look at what I have done. I have done all of these things to make it right because I know I was wrong. I recognize I was wrong. I recognized all of my sin. And so look at all the right I did. And, he's, and that's establishing your own righteousness. And he says, it's not, it's not enough. It's not enough. It's insignificant. It's insufficient. Depart from me, you worker of lawlessness. It's devastating for someone to think that they have established their way to God and for God to say, no, no, it's not enough. Because it's not perfection. And you cannot be in the presence of God without being pure and holy, Hebrews tells us. Without that holiness, no one will see God. So Paul is in deep anguish that, that his, his kinsmen, his brothers, his, his relatives didn't understand. They were ignorant of God's righteousness. They were ignorant of it. They didn't know it. They didn't trust it. They didn't believe it. So they established their own. They set up their own system to trust in themselves and not submit to God's way. And submit to God's way, God's way was my righteousness and my righteousness alone. And what's beautiful about that is the righteousness of God, as we've discovered in this passage, is eternal. It's faithful. It's tried and tested and true. It's there. It's on display in the Word. It's on display in His Son. And it can be 
imputed to us. Read in Romans 3, it says this in verse 21 through 26. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there's no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness. Because of His divine forbearance, He had passed over former sins. It was to show His righteousness at the present time, so that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. His righteousness is our plea. When we get to meet God face to face, our plea is your righteousness, your Son, Jesus Christ, the perfect and only righteous one. It's Him. It's Him that I look to. I don't look to my own established righteousness. I don't look to the things that I have done, that I have fixed, that I have cleaned up. I don't look to any of it because none of it is lasting. None of it is perfectly right. None of it is faithful. None of it is true, perfectly pure. My righteousness can never stand the test of time. Because I might be right to, righteous today and, and make a right decision today and make a wrong one tomorrow. I don't want to stand on my own righteousness, but I look to the righteousness of God, which is unwavering. And, and that righteousness came in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why it says that in, in Romans 3, the righteousness of God, uh, it, it was manifested apart from the law, even though they testified to it about it. And it was about the Lord Jesus, that he came. Perfectly righteous, everything right, everything pure, everything holy, everything true and tried, and every promise fulfilled. The righteousness of God in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so then 2 Corinthians 5.21 says that if you trust in the Lord Jesus, that what you're doing is not just believing that he's going to take away your sin and forgive it, which he does. But more than that, he imputes his own righteousness on you. There's a great exchange. Your filth and your unrighteousness, your sin, your record of wrong is placed on Jesus Christ. It's placed on him. So then he stands before God, unholy, unrighteous, unpure, and takes all the judgment of that. So now your record's clean. It's been paid for. You're off the hooks, as it were. So now, you do not have all that sin record. You don't have the guilt. You don't have the shame. You're now free. The shackles are gone. You're a new creation. And more than that, not only did Jesus, your, your sin was imputed to Christ and counted to Christ, and He took it on Himself, but His righteousness was counted to you. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, uh, In Him, that is Christ, that, that we have become the righteousness of God. 
We have taken on, it has been imparted to us, it's put on our account. The righteousness, the perfect righteousness of God has been accounted to us. So then, as Hebrews says, without purity, without holiness, you cannot see God. We don't go and say, look, I have been pure, I have fixed myself up, because that's all inconsistent and it will all crumble in a moment. But we come and we say, I have Christ. I have Christ, I'm robed in Him, I'm clothed in Him, and that's all I am. All I have to offer you is what Christ has offered. I am in Christ. That's where I hide myself, that's where I find myself, in His perfect righteousness that is tried, true, tested, and faithful. That's our plea. And it is eternal. His righteousness is eternal. Ours will fade, ours will come and go, we'll have seasons but God will not. And so then we plead and we understand, we want to understand as the end of verse 144 says, give me understanding so that I may live. The only way to truly live is to live in the righteousness of Christ, clothed in, covered by, transformed by the rightness of God. So that I understand the righteousness of God, the righteousness of Christ is my plea, it's my cover, it's my hope, it's my security, is Christ is righteous forever and that's unshaking. And so I'm going to trust in him and his righteousness for me on my behalf. He became my representative and I am so thankful for that. So I trust in Jesus and then, because of that, I want to be transformed. I know that God is right, and so I want to do right. I know everything God says is right. Right are your rules, it says in verse 137. And so, I want to confess that. I want to declare that, that God is right. So I want to live that way. I want to be transformed. God, give me understanding so that I might remember your word. So I can live right. Not so that I think I can earn my way to heaven, but so that I can declare you are right and your rules are right. And you deserve the everyone to know for me to testify as you have testified. It says there that you have appointed your testimonies in righteousness. So let then my life testify of your righteousness. Let my obedience to your rules be because I say you're right and I'm wrong. So let us remember, let us not forget, let us remember the righteousness of Christ, the righteousness of God, and the expression of it in his word. So then we come and we say, how do I live rightly? We live the word. We obey the word because what it declares about God, that he is right, his way is right, and that is right. So we want then to declare the righteousness of God, because it's our plea, right? It's our hope. It's our stay. It's our security. And so we want to declare it by the way we live. Not so that we get to heaven, but because of what he has done for us, we say, look, he is right. Let's be people then who not forget the word. Let's be people who beg God, ask God, give me understanding. I want to understand. I don't want to be like the Israelites that Paul was in anguish over and are ignorant of your righteousness. I don't want to be so ignorant that I start establishing my own and start thinking that that's going to earn me a way to God or it's going to earn me favor or love from God. That's ignorant. But let me trust that you are righteous and your righteousness is forever and that I can be found in it and transformed by it for your glory. Let that be our hope and our prayer.
for his glory. Let's pray. God, you are right and pure. You are always right, and your righteousness is forever. The expression of your righteousness, the impression of your righteousness on your word and in the Lord Jesus Christ are so satisfying to us. Help us to love them and delight in them, to find ourselves hidden in them, that your Holy Spirit would help us to obey your rules, to keep your rules because they are right and they testify all the more that you are right and your ways are right. God, you deserve us to give you the glory this way, to give our grateful hearts to you in this way. So we're asking for your help, not because we think that our obedience earns us a spot in heaven, but, be, but because we know that our obedience brings you glory and brings you the praise you deserve, and it speaks the truth about you, that your ways are right and ours are not. So God, we need your help, and we're asking for it now in Christ's name. Amen.